Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. We're looking today at a text which is read a lot in the lectionary. It's very well known amongst Christians, and this whole area of text appears quite a few times on the liturgical calendar. So as always, our goal is to help you understand the text of scripture. And today's passage, if you go to Mass, is John chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Jesus said to Nicodemus, The Son of Man must be lifted up, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. God loved the world so much that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not be lost, but may have eternal life. For God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world, but so that through him the world might be saved. No one who believes in him will be condemned, but whoever refuses to believe is condemned already, because he has refused to believe in the name of God's only Son. On these grounds is sentence pronounced. That though the light has come into the world, men have shown that they prefer darkness to the light, because their deeds were evil. And indeed, everybody who does wrong hates the light and avoids it, for for fear his actions should be exposed. But the man who lives by the truth comes out into the light, so that it may be plainly seen that what he does is done in God." So, as always, we want to start by thinking about the context. What's happened just before this? So, Jesus has just started the conversation with Nicodemus, that famous conversation. Nicodemus is one of the leading Jews, and Jesus has just told Nicodemus in the previous passage, unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, at that point, Nicodemus was very surprised, and so Jesus said to him, the wind blows wherever it pleases. And Nicodemus is still surprised. He still doesn't get it. So Jesus then says, If you do not believe me when I speak about things in this world, how will you believe me when I speak about heavenly things? So all of this is context leading up to the rest of the conversation today. And you can hear that lead up on Tuesday of week two in Eastertide. So that leads into what we have today, where Jesus continues to speak to Nicodemus. And in verse 14... Jesus said to Nicodemus, and now he's going to use this term son of man, which was a term at the time of Jesus, which basically referred to the Messiah. So Jesus is going to talk about the Messiah, the son of man in third person, but he's actually referring to himself here. Verse 14, the son of man must be lifted up. Now, many would have taken that to mean sort of military language, as in the son of man, the Messiah is going to be a military glorious leader. He'll be lifted up, but we later learn from other things that John says in his gospel that when Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up, it's a reference to the crucifixion, basically. The word here for lifted up is hypso in Greek, and that has two different meanings. It can mean to be lifted up from the ground or to be exalted. Both of those occurred on the cross. Both meanings apply to what happened to Jesus on the cross. And here there's a reference to the suffering servant of Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13. You all know the suffering servant passage. One of the things it says there in verse 13 is that the servant will be lifted high and exceedingly glorified. So both meanings of hypso are found in Isaiah 52, 13 
and Jesus fulfills both meanings on the cross. So Jesus here gives a prediction that he's going to die on the cross and be lifted up and exalted. But Jesus goes further. The son of man must be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert. So we want to understand a bit about what's this reference to Moses lifting up the serpent in the desert. A lot of people know a lot about Moses's life, particularly the book of Exodus, but we're less familiar with the book of Numbers. And Jesus is referring to something Moses does in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. And what's going on in this chapter is the Israelites are in the wilderness and they're being disobedient. They're disobeying God. And so God sends these snakes as punishments for their sin. The people are dying from these snake bites and they cry out to Moses and they say to Moses, please intercede on our behalf to God. So Moses does. And then God tells Moses to make a brass snake, to actually craft a brass snake and then put it on a high pole. And then when the Israelite people who have been bitten look at the pole, they will be healed. It's a very strange thing, but that's what God does. He makes Moses, he doesn't heal people instantaneously. He makes them look at the bronze serpent on the pole. God could have healed them in any way he wanted. But the the idea, of course, is that sin, uh, sorry, snakes represent sin. And so God makes them look at this symbol of sin, this big serpent, the symbol of sin. And when they look at the serpent, the idea is that people recognize themselves as sinners and then they're healed and they don't die. So it's kind of their way of accessing forgiveness, almost forgiveness and healing. So God could have done it lots of ways, but here, notice what he does. He chooses to have a visible sign in front of their eyes, the Israelites. He wants them to look at something visible and be healed through looking at that visible thing. So it's almost sacramental, spiritual healing through a physical reality that God puts in place. Now, God's reasons for doing that are never unpacked in the Old Testament. What we're saying here about it representing sin and things, the Old Testament doesn't say that. That's just our speculation. But here, even though the Old Testament doesn't talk about the reason why God put uh, the serpent on the pole and made them look at it, Jesus gives it an explanation here. So something which hasn't been revisited since 1500 BC, Jesus now explains what was going on there. So as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, the son of man must be lifted up. So what's the similarity here between... Moses lifting up the serpent on the pole in the wilderness and the son of man, Jesus being lifted up on the cross. Well, I think there's three main similarities here, and this is quite profound. Snakes are a symbol of sin. And so the snakes are killing people in the wilderness as a result of their sin. And the similarity with the Jesus is sin kills people spiritually, just as snakes kill people literally. Secondly, Moses sets up a snake for them to look at, which is a symbol of the seriousness of their sin. Jesus lifted up on the cross is a symbol of the seriousness of our sin, of all people's sin. We're supposed to look at Jesus and see that as a symbol of of sin and how serious it is. Thirdly, by looking at the snake on the pole, the people were healed physically. And when people look to Jesus on the cross, they are healed spiritually and given eternal life. So as Christians, based on what Jesus teaches here, we believe that God set up that incident of the serpent on the pole to point towards final salvation, which Jesus would bring on the cross 1500 years later. Jesus deliberately did things that way in the desert 
to point people towards the final fulfillment, which is Jesus. And that's fascinating for us as Christians who believe the Old Testament is only fully revealed in the New Testament. And Jesus finishes by saying, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, just as the Son of Man will be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And that directly echoes what happens in the book of Numbers, which uh, the book of Numbers in that scene says, anyone who looks on the serpent will be healed. Whereas here, it's anyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Believes, you've heard me talk about this before on the podcast, believes in the Jewish context first century didn't mean intellectual assent, as in I agree with this statement. It meant complete trust, putting your whole life trusting it into this belief system about Jesus. And he mentions here eternal life. Anyone who believes may have eternal life. And that's something which is unpacked a lot in the Gospel of John. It's a major theme. In the Gospel of John, eternal life, according to Jesus, carries the idea of deep supernatural intimacy with God, both in this life and in the next. And John later expressly says that the reason he wrote his Gospel so that people can have eternal life. That's what he wants people to get out of reading the Gospel of John. So why does Jesus use the example of the serpent right now at this point in the conversation with Nicodemus? As we do an exegesis on it, I think we can say that Jesus is teaching Nicodemus that the example of the serpent in the wilderness is an example of an earthly thing which signifies a spiritual reality. He knows Nicodemus, knows the story about the serpent in the wilderness. So he talks to him about that and wants Nicodemus to realize that that was pointing to a deeper spiritual reality. He wants Nicodemus to see the scriptures in a new spiritual way so that he can become closer to understanding the things of God. That's why Jesus brings up that example. So it's actually an act of compassion. He knows that Nicodemus is struggling a bit with these spiritual concepts. So Jesus gives him a physical event that he knows Nicodemus will be aware of and gets him to be anchored in that. Now, it's worth pointing out that there's different views for this next passage that we're about to look at about who is saying it. And the reason is because in the original Greek text, there's no quotation marks. So it's very hard to tell when one person starts talking and stops talking, and then when the author starts sort of adding editorial comments. So some scholars think that from this point on that we're about to read, it's not actually Jesus talking anymore. Jesus has already finished speaking to Nicodemus. And now what happens is the author John, John the Apostle, starts to talk himself. There's no way of telling because there's no quotation marks in the original. It could be Jesus continuing to speak to Nicodemus, Or it could be the Apostle John adding his own comments from here on out. We're going to assume for our episode that it's Jesus continuing to speak because that's how most people have taken it throughout history. But even if it's not Jesus, if it's the Apostle John just telling us how things work theologically, then there's no substantial difference. So in verse 16 now, and it says, God loved the world so much most translations have the word for here because it's a, it's connecting to what has just come before. There's a connection between what Jesus has said about the crucifixion and being lifted up in verse 15 to the next bit, which is God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. When it says God loved the world, we shouldn't think of love as like fluffy cloud feelings. Love in the New Testament basically means wants the best for. So God wants the best for people so much 
And that tells us a lot about the character of God. He's a God who's interested in us and he wants our very best. And this is the God that Jesus has come to reveal. The Jews at the time had some partial understanding of God, but they didn't really understand this love aspect of God. God loved, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, this is a fairly radical claim because the Jews at the time struggled with this idea that God could have a son. So the Messiah, Jesus, as we know him, is the second person of the Trinity, and that makes him the Father's only son. We're all sons and daughters of God in a different sense, but God, but Jesus is the Son of God in a special sense that no one else has. And the Father sends this Son, the second person of the Trinity, into the world in the Incarnation. So that's a gift in and of itself. But then further, on top of that, the Father allows his only Son to die. And he does that out of love for the world, because he wants the best for the world. That's an incredible sacrifice, well, for any father to make, but for God to make, to give up his own true son on the behalf of sinners is an incredible sacrifice. And it tells us a lot about the infinite love of God. So that, and Jesus tells us now why God gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him may not be lost, but may have eternal life. So anyone who believes in him, that's anyone who puts their trust. Remember, belief in the New Testament means trust. So anyone who puts their trust in Jesus and his teachings And obviously that requires submitting to the promptings of the Spirit, because it's not something we can do in our own strength, may not be lost, or as a lot of translations have it, may not perish. What does it mean to perish or to be lost? It seems to refer to being separated from God forever in eternity. So it's basically a way of describing hell in the next life, being separated from God. And we know from the rest of Scripture that that's definitely not what God wants, 2 Peter 3, chapter 9 says God does not want anyone to perish. So rather, God gave that so that we may have eternal life. Eternal life is a common phrase in the Gospel of John, and it basically means eternal communion with God, with the Trinity, in this life and the next life. It covers both. Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand that the Son plays a crucial role in bringing people into the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus is talking about it in this context. Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand the purpose for him coming as the Son of Man, and also to understand that the Holy Spirit's role is to lead people to Jesus as the Son of Man. Nicodemus is seeking the kingdom of God. Nicodemus knows that the kingdom of God exists, but he doesn't understand this idea of God sending his Son. And so this whole conversation is trying to help Nicodemus see that accepting Jesus and accepting the Son of Man, the Messiah, is an important prerequisite into getting into the kingdom of God. Jesus continues in verse 17. He says, For God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world. So it was probably a common Jewish view at the time that when when the Messiah comes, he's going to be coming primarily to judge all unbelievers and then to vindicate those who are already following God. So they probably had this idea of the Messiah that Uh, God's just going to wipe out all unbelievers when the Messiah comes. And that's not the case from what we know of Jesus, but that's what they thought. But Jesus goes on a few verses later to qualify that a bit. He's going to say that God will condemn some people in relation to what they think about Jesus, his son. 
But that's not the reason he sent the Son into the world. Rather, that through him the world might be saved. So this is the Father's plan. We need to hear this loud and clear. And if you're listening and you're not a Catholic or you're not a Christian, you need to hear this is the core of the gospel. God sent his only son, Jesus, from heaven into our world that we might be saved, that we might have eternal life with him. That's the Father's plan, that through Jesus, the whole world would be saved. Now, that would include Gentiles. The Jews at the time thought that it was probably just Jews who were going to be saved. But here Jesus says the world might be saved, and that would include non-Jewish people. All people, through Jesus, can be saved from eternal separation from God and brought back into communion with him. Verse 18, no one believes, no one who believes in him will be condemned. So Jesus, and by the way, this idea of belief is not considered to be a one-time thing in the New Testament. It's a continuing thing. So Jesus here is basically saying those who continue to trust in Jesus will continue to have eternal life with the Father. So how do you get to heaven? The basic New Testament teaching is continue to trust in Jesus and continue to make him the Lord of your life and follow him and you'll stay in God's friendship and you'll be saved. That's the basic New Testament teaching. But then Jesus flips that around. He says, he who refuses to believe. Now notice the language of refuses. It involves a willing refusal to believe and trust in Jesus, not just ignorance, but actually refusing to believe. So in context, this refers primarily to those in Jesus' time who had already been hearing Jesus preach and they're refusing to believe in him. Obviously, the main group of people were the Pharisees. They were hearing Jesus preach and they were refusing to believe. And Jesus says, he who refuses to believe is condemned already. Notice the present tense is used. It's not a person is either, it's not um, in the next life, you will be condemned. It's they're condemned already. So the teaching here appears to be that a person at any given time is either saved or not saved in this life. And that when they die, whatever state they were in at the time of death is what's going to be reflected in the next life. And that fits in pretty nicely with other things John says about eternal life, starting in this life, continuing in the next life. But it's important to keep in mind that that state is not fixed. People can change from being a state of belief to a state of unbelief. At various times in their life, they can go back and forth. And then he gives the reason. Why is it that those who refuse to believe are condemned? Jesus says, because he has refused to believe in the name of God's only son. And the term, the name of, in that time period, meant to to believe in someone's name, meant to believe in the person themselves and their message. So it wasn't just to believe that they have a nice name or something. It's to believe in everything that that person stands for. So if people refuse the means of salvation that God has provided, which is Jesus, then they're condemned. So this is primarily talking about those in Jesus' time, although obviously it extends to our time as well. But Jesus' primary meaning here is one cannot say that they believe in God but then willingly reject the message of Jesus, that would not give them salvation. One cannot have both at the same time. Verse 19, on these grounds is the sentence pronounced, or other translations just have this as, this is the judgment. So Jesus is now going to provide more information about this condemnation aspect. He has a lot to say here about it. And what his his basic teaching is going to be, either people accept the Messiah, the Son of Man, or they reject him. 
and that's the grounds of judgment. But he uses the language of light and darkness, and here's what he says. I'll read out the entire phrase. On these grounds is sentence pronounced, that though the light has come into the world, men have shown that they prefer darkness to the light because their deeds were evil. So the light has come into the world, that's the Messiah, who has come to illuminate the Father's true character and will. Even though the light has come into the world, Jesus says men have shown that they prefer darkness to the light because their deeds were evil. And this is probably referring again to the Pharisees who are openly rejecting him. Rejecting the Messiah is the ultimate example of an evil deed. That is evil. When someone is shown the light, the Messiah and his teachings like the Pharisees were, and yet they refuse to believe, then Jesus says that's equivalent to preferring the darkness. And that's evil. That's contrary to God's will. If you reject the Messiah, who is the light, who has come to teach us about God, and you reject that, then you prefer darkness, and that is evil. Now, Jesus is going to give us more information here. This is quite an in-depth discussion Jesus provides. He's now going to explain why it is that some people refuse to come to the light. Now, this doesn't excuse them from judgment. Jesus isn't saying, well, it's understandable that people don't come to the light. He's not excusing them, but he is going to explain their motivation to Nicodemus. He says, everybody who hates, sorry, everybody who does wrong hates the light and avoids it for fear his actions should be exposed. And this is an interesting teaching. Jesus says that people who perform evil acts know that if they come to the Messiah, then their deeds are going to be exposed as evil and they're going to have to stop doing them. And Jesus says here that people want to keep doing evil acts. That's the general state of people. People prefer to keep doing what is wrong. Notice they willingly choose to keep doing what is wrong. They would rather not have those deeds exposed as evil. They want to keep doing what is wrong. Probably means deep down inside they know it's wrong, but they don't want to stop doing them. And this is reflected later in Paul's teachings. Romans 1 verse 18 says, People in their wickedness suppress the truth. So Jesus here is talking about people who know what they're doing is wrong, like the Pharisees, but they don't want to think about it. They're just being stubborn because they know that if they think about it, if they come to Jesus, they'll have to change their ways. But then Jesus talks about the other reaction you could have. The man who lives by the truth comes out into the light. So the best way of looking at this verse is the one who does good has nothing to be afraid of by accepting the Messiah and his teachings because he's doing good. He's living by the truth. What does it mean by truth here? Basically means living by God's will. That's equivalent to the truth. If you know God and you know his will, you're living in the truth. And a similar teaching is reflected elsewhere in John where it says you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. It's knowing God's will. Now, that's the kind of person who's going to accept the Messiah. Someone who already knows God's will is someone who's going to accept the Messiah. So that it may be plainly seen that what he does is done in God. Plainly seen. It's this idea of that other people will see what they're doing. Jesus says that those who come to the Messiah, the whole world will see through the light of Jesus, through the divine light, what the person who is living in the truth does. In other words... It's all kind of tied together, but the basic idea is when someone who does good works comes to the Messiah, the whole world will be able to see that that person who's doing his good works 
because of God. And as a result of all of this, um, God will be glorified. People will turn to God as a result of seeing people living in the truth, people coming to the Messiah, people doing good works. That's all going to glorify God. So complex language here from John, uh, but that's he's kind of integrating the moral dimension with the spiritual, with the theological all at once. Now, some people have seen this passage as teaching predestination, as in there's two different categories. Either you come to the light or you stay away from the light. And that's just it. You're fixed. You're in one of the two categories and that's it. And the reason it doesn't teach that, I think that's a bad interpretation, is because what Jesus says is, the man who lives by the truth comes out into the light. And that implies willingly coming out into the light. Clearly, the New Testament teaching and the teaching of Jesus is that people can choose to change their ways and come out into the light of the Messiah if they are seeking the truth. People who are genuinely seeking the truth will, no matter how hard it is, they will turn and they'll come to Jesus. They'll come out into the light. In fact, coming to the Messiah, although these people aren't perfect when they first come to the Messiah, it's the first sign that someone is following God's will and they're living in the truth. That's a good sign if someone is willing to come to the Messiah and leave their old ways behind. St. Bernard of Clairvaux says this, to consent is to be saved. That's what God asks of us, to consent to God and the Messiah's teachings, to come to him, to consent, that is basically means you're saved if you continually consent to God. Now, the next section of text here from the Gospel of John is John chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. And that is a section about John the Baptist. Now, in most countries, you'll never hear that read in the lectionary. So if you want to hear an exegesis of the next part of John chapter 3, that will be covered as a bonus episode. In fact, that's available now as a bonus episode through the Patreon page. So if you're willing to give $10 or more per month to the ministry to help the work of the ministry, to keep it going, to help help us do more projects, then all of the bonus episodes automatically become available to you as they're released. So John chapter 3 verses 22 to 30 is available through the Patreon page and the link for that is in the show notes. I hope you'll consider giving so that the ministry can continue doing what it's doing. So let's read out a few catechism passages. How does the Catholic Church understand this passage that we've seen and how can it inform our understanding of how all the Catholic teachings fit together? Paragraph 2130. This is in the section about you shall not make for yourself a graven image. And so obviously this links to what Jesus said about the bronze serpent. Paragraph 2130 says... Nevertheless, already in the Old Testament, God ordained or permitted the making of images that pointed symbolically towards salvation by the incarnate word. So it was with the bronze serpent, the Ark of the Covenant, and the cherubim. So here we have the bronze serpent listed among some other things of times in the Old Testament when God does permit the making of images in certain circumstances. Paragraph 219 is in the section about God is love, and this is surely one of the most important Catholic teachings. God's love for Israel is compared to a father's love for his son. His love for his people is stronger than a mother's love for her children. God loves his people more than a bridegroom, his beloved. His love will be victorious over over even the worst infidelities and will extend to his most precious gift. Quote, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
So this is a core Catholic teaching. If we don't understand this, that God is love, then we're probably not believing in the Christian God. Verse, uh, sorry, paragraph 444 is a discussion about the only son of God. It says, Jesus calls himself the only son of God and by this title affirms his eternal pre-existence. He asks for faith in the name of the only son of God. And that last part, of course, is a quote from John chapter 3, the name of the only son of God. Paragraph 458 is in the discussion about why did the word become flesh? The word became flesh so that thus we might know God's love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So that is why the word, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh so that we might know that God is love. That's the basic reason why Jesus came to earth. And then in paragraph 678, 679, we have a discussion about Jesus' role in judging people because this the second half of John chapter 3 that we heard is all about people being judged. And here's what the Catechism has to say about it. Following in the steps of the prophets and John the Baptist, Jesus announced the judgment of the last day in his preaching. Then will the conduct of each one and the secrets of hearts be brought to light. Then will the culpable unbelief that counted the offer of God's grace as nothing will be condemned. Christ is Lord of eternal life. Full right to pass definitive judgment on the works and hearts of men belongs to him as Redeemer of the world. He acquired this right by his cross. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. Yet the Son did not come to judge, but to save and to give the life he has in himself. By rejecting grace in this life, one already judges oneself, receives according to one's works, and can even condemn oneself for all eternity by rejecting the spirit of love. So those paragraphs are really important in laying out in what sense is Jesus judge? How can a person condemn himself to separation from God for eternity? And how does that all fit together in terms of God's love and judgment? So that's a really good paragraph to read over and over and meditate on. Paragraph 678, 679. I'll put all of those in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Hopefully you found it really useful again. Please subscribe on YouTube if you're listening on YouTube. Share it around on iTunes. I'd be very grateful. Thank you so much for your support of the ministry. And hopefully you'll tune in again tomorrow for more exegesis of the literal sense of the Gospels.